Please take your Bible, turn with me to the book of John, the 11th chapter. This morning, we're going to begin where we left off last week in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. The last verse we considered was verse 6 of chapter 11 of John. Today, we'll begin with verse 7 and go as far as the Lord permits today. Verse 7 of chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. Then after this, Jesus said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. This he said, after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sake that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. Forty-four years ago this month, I'm holding in my hand, not 44 years ago, I'm doing that today, obviously, but this poem, which I'm holding in my hand, was published 44 years ago, actually the 18th of October. Let me read it to you. It's entitled, Time Waits for No One. Star crossed in pleasure, the stream flows on by, as we're sated in leisure, We watch it fly. Time can tear down a building or destroy a woman's face. Hours are like diamonds. Don't let them waste. Men, they build towers to their passing, to their fame everlasting. Here he comes chopping and reaping. Hear him laugh at their cheating. Drink in your summer. Gather your corn. The dreams of the nighttime will vanish by dawn. And time waits for no one. It will not wait for me. And time waits for no one. And it will not wait for me. No, no, no. Not for me. Not for me. That poem was written by Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. They were 31 years of age when they wrote it. Ten years before that, in 1964, they published a lyrical song they had Compose themselves as well. And time is on my side. Well, ten years made a difference in the way they viewed time. And I wonder if they were able to stand here today. They would have anything more to say about time. They're 75 years of age. Keith will be 75 December the 18th, both born in 1943. And the reality is, for sure, that time is no respecter of persons. You might even say that time has a mind of its own. It may be a curse 
or it could be hopefully a gift, depending upon who's in control of time. In either case, time matters. Jesus speaks of time here in this passage that we're reading. But before I look at that with you this morning, I would like to draw your attention to the fact that of all the four gospel writers, John seems to be more concerned about time than all the other put together. For instance, beginning with verse 19 of chapter 1, going through verse 11 of chapter 2 of the Gospel of John, he chronicles the first week of Jesus' public ministry. He talks about how John the Baptist is approached by a delegation coming from the Jews in Jerusalem. And they ask him, are you the Christ? To which John the Baptist gives a resounding, no, I am not the Christ. Then, shortly thereafter, John sees Jesus and he makes the declaration in the presence of some of his own disciples, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as he saw Jesus walking by. And shortly thereafter, some of those disciples Two, to be exact, followed Jesus. Then Jesus sees these two, to whom He has introduced Himself, go and find friends, and they come. And then Jesus retires to Galilee, and these new disciples followed Him to Galilee. And then He finds Himself at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. That first week is really important in the life of Christ and to the Gospel of John. And the one who wrote it, because he was an eyewitness to all that, for sure. Probably you've also noticed how often the word hour occurs, spelled with an H, by the way, in the Gospel of John. I'm going to allude to just two usages of it. In the second chapter of John, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to him, she was concerned about what was not going to happen if someone didn't produce some wine at this great wedding feast and everybody would be embarrassed that they had run out of wine. And she said to him, son, they've run out of wine. He says, what do you have to do with me or what do I have to do with you, woman? My hour has not yet come. And then at the end of his life here on earth in John 17, 1, In his high priestly prayer to the Father, he begins it by saying this, Father, my hour has come. The writer of the Gospel of John marks events by the great feasts of Israel. At least four Passovers are mentioned. And those are high water marks in the Gospel. They're opportunities for Jesus to reveal Himself. One, at least, of the Feast of Tabernacles is referred to, and more recently, we saw in the 10th chapter of John about the Feast of Dedication, what we now know as Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights. So, festivals were important. Time matters to the Gospel writer. Time matters to Jesus. Time matters to us as well. So, here's the big question for us today. This is the major question you and I need to ponder And answer in our own lives. Who is in control of your time? Do we really trust God as the sovereign of history? 
I love what one writer said in defining history. It was a simple definition. All he said was history is his story. Our God is sovereign over all of history in general. And in the lives of His children, particularly, if you know Jesus Christ, if you are a sheep of Christ, He is involved in your life as well. I'm not discounting those who do not know Him as people who do not have need to have their time under the control of the Lord. But primarily this message would be to us who know the Lord today. In Psalm 31, 15, this is what we read It says, as David speaks to God, he says, My times are in your hand. David believed that. I believe that. I hope you to believe that as well. Our God is a sovereign God, and He is interested in our time because we are His children, just as we on the human level are interested in our children's lives and we are involved in their lives, so is our God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 7 in our text, chapter 11 of John. Then after this, and this was the declaration by Jesus, after having received word, as you recall from last week, that Lazarus, his friend, was very ill. And Jesus told his disciples, we're not going immediately We're going to stay around here for a while before we go. And they stayed two more days. Then after that two-day delay, look at what Jesus says. He said to His disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, Jesus had just spent time with His disciples in a very fruitful ministry after Jesus had been threatened with death by stoning, and he took his band of men and they went away into the safety of another region. Look at again verses 40 through 42 of chapter 10 of John. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. I can only imagine what was going through the minds of these disciples as they compared what would lie ahead for Jesus and for them if they accompanied him if they went back to Judea. There had been several threats on Jesus' life prior to what is recorded at the Feast of Dedications in chapter 10. But there had not been quite the level of animosity and fury which enraged the hearts of the leaders of Israel. They were intent upon killing Jesus. But the Father allowed Him to escape with His men and to go to this region near the Jordan, where he had been baptized when his ministry had first begun. And then many people were coming to know him. It was like a revival had broken out in that region. And I would have probably been with the disciples and saying, Lord, are you sure you want to go back to Judea? And really they were saying, Lord, we're not sure we want you to go, and we're not at all sure we want to go. Underlying that, and Jesus understood this. These people were facing danger. Look at verse 8. 
the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? So Jesus is testing his men to see if they truly trust God to be in control of their time, in control of their days, in control of their lives. He also was testing to see if they were really willing to spend their time that God had given to them in serving Him, accompanying Him, as it were, into the lines then, if they were to go back there in the face of danger. They were willing to go, but they still needed to learn that all of their time, all of their days, belonged to the Father's sovereignty. And that God was determining all of that. So Christ asks in verse 9 a very interesting question. We're going to see the question on the screen. Are there not 12 hours in one day? Well, this is the way in which the Jews counted time. Every day had 12 hours. Now, we know every day doesn't have 12 hours, and they knew it too. But they had no sophisticated way of telling time. They had a sundial, and they would divide whatever number of hours were in a day by 12, and then they would work that much time. And when darkness came, they didn't work anymore. Every day has 12 hours. Jesus is asking them, don't you know that every day has 12 hours, and it's in that period of time that people are to do the work that God has given them to do. There are three truths which emerge from this, and we need to learn these truths. Here's the first one. Each of us has a certain amount of time, and nothing can shorten it. If we believe God is indeed sovereign of our time, then that is the truth. Let's see a couple of verses of Scripture which confirm this. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Do you think God is going to be caught off guard when you find yourself in a threatening situation like the disciples assumed they would encounter if they went back to Judea? And they were right. It was incredibly threatening for Jesus. But he knew that his time had come. That's what the Bible tells us in the next chapter, in the 12th chapter. In the 23rd verse, Jesus talks about, or the writer of John does at least, about knowing that his time had come. The time of reckoning in his own life had come, but he still was at peace. How come? Because he understood the sovereignty of God. These men needed to know that not only was Jesus one who was under the sovereign care of the Father and jurisdiction, I might add, but also that their lives were similar. Jesus' life wouldn't be cut short by his enemies until the time came for that to happen, nor are or are ours. We will not die until the time for our death comes. Let's look at the next verse from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 2. There is a time to give birth or to be born, depending on the translation, and a time to die. 
It has been appointed unto man once to die, the Bible says, and then comes the judgment. In the book of 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel, I guess it is, 14, 14, the Bible says, Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. This is the reality of all of our lives. But knowing God is our Father, and knowing how good a Father He is, the sting of death has been taken out of it, out of our lives, by what Christ has done for us in His death and resurrection. So, God gives us a certain number of days. And we don't have to be afraid of what others can do to us. Are you aware of that? Let me read something from Stonewall Jackson, who was an officer in the Confederate Army in the Civil War. He was asked by one of his junior officers why he could be so fearless in battle. Listen to what he said. My religious beliefs take me, make me rather to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I don't concern myself about that, but to always be ready no matter when it takes me. He said, Captain, that's the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. Now, he knew the Lord. If you know anything about him, he knew the Lord. But here's what happened. He died from friendly fire. You know what friendly fire is? He was going out to see what had happened after a day of vicious battling in what was known as the wilderness. It was so thick. It was like a wilderness in Virginia where the battle was being waged. And he was shot in the arm. The wound was so bad that his arm had to be amputated. He developed pneumonia. There were no antibiotics. And ten days later, he died. When he died, Robert E. Lee said this, I have lost my right arm. And do you know the war made a turn in the direction of union superiority with the death of this man? You can see the sovereign hand in that man's death and the union being preserved and the freedom of people who had been enslaved for generations. So here was a man who knew the Lord and he was not afraid of dying because he knew his God was overseeing that and the result was that he didn't fear. He, he went to what some would consider an early death at the age of 39. But we see this evidence in the illustration of his life. If you and I see our days as being ours to control, at some point in our progression through life, we can become very worried about our lives. Some begin to worry earlier than others, but eventually when our bodies begin to break down or problems enter our lives, we become real nervous, overly cautious. The result is that we want to be sure that when we're taking a trip, for instance, that we can be as safe as we possibly can be. Some people, probably in this room, have refused to fly or even go on a road trip during a particular season of the year because they're afraid they're going to die. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't exercise wisdom. 
We shouldn't tempt God. There's a difference between living in dependent faith upon the Lord and presuming upon God. There's a big difference, and God would give us the wisdom for that. And there are other people who are so afraid of dying that they constantly, constantly examine themselves and they think they have illnesses that may be fatal. Have you ever had that thought come into your mind? You're here today, so it hasn't happened yet, right? But every once in a while, I'll get an ache or a pain somewhere, and I'm thinking, I wonder what that is. <laughs> I think maybe I need to call the doctor. And that's perfectly legitimate. Don't hear, mishear what I'm saying. But the reality is, we can go to the doctor without great trepidation, and we get an examination for something that's bothering us. But really, in the long run, God is in control of our lives. It's good to know, isn't it? If you are in control, you will be fearful. I cannot help but think about Howard Hughes. Do you know the name Howard Hughes? Do you know how he spent the last years of his life alone in a hotel in Las Vegas? He had a whole floor. He owned the deal. He had a whole floor, maybe more than one, that no one could enter except those whom he gave permission to enter. And he wouldn't let them touch his food or anything. He lived like a hermit trying to preserve his life. What kind of life is that? It's a life that's lived in fear because he believed he had to control his life. If God's in control of our lives, we can be cheerful. Isn't that true? I can't tell you how many people I know who have an incredible joy in the face of terrible odds as far as their physical conditions go. Some of the most joyful people I have ever met are people who, in effect, have been given a death sentence, but they know whom they have believed and are persuaded that He is able to keep that which they've committed to Him against that day. And they're actually, without being morbid, looking forward to meeting the Lord. And so should we. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints, is what the Bible says. He looks forward to our homecoming, and certainly we should too. Well, let's go to a second statement connected to the question which Jesus asked, are there not twelve hours in one day? If God gives us a certain amount of time and nothing can shorten it, we have enough time to do all God has planned for us to do. I'll never forget hearing about a man who was a good pastor, but he was overly conscientious. His name was Dick Jones. And Mr. Jones worked himself into sickness. In fact, he developed pneumonia. He was entered into the hospital. His physician, who was a member of his church, came to evaluate him. And he was so wrought up that he was given a sedative so that he could calm down and get some rest. In that rest, he had a dream that he died and he went to heaven. And when he arrived there, he was greeted by the doorkeeper. And he asked, who is that person over there wringing his hands in heaven? I thought heaven was a place where there were no tears and no worry. 
And then the gatekeeper said, that's God. He's heard that Dick Jones has died and he doesn't know what he's going to do. This happens. Well, some of us who are pastors have to learn the lesson that God can do very well without us. But he does have something for all of us to do, not just pastors. All of us who are his sons and daughters, all of us who are his sheep, he has something for us to do. And the plan is that we follow him day by day. Now, 12 hours would be what the common work day was in Jesus' day. Now, many of you do not work 12 hours. Some of you work more. But here's what I can say with great confidence. God will never give you more to do than you have time to do. If you have 16 hours of work a day all the time, if you are just working to the point of exhaustion, I would say probably God's not in that. Because... He wants you to rest. Remember what the Bible says in Psalm 127. In vain you go to bed late. In vain you rise up early. And you don't understand that God gives to His beloved in their sleep. Sleep is a huge blessing from God. It is so therapeutic to get sleep. I was talking to a sister in Christ just this week, last week. And I had missed her at the place of worship. And I was asking her, are you all right? She said, I am today because I've had four straight nights of good rest. Isn't it amazing what happens when we are able to rest? And when we know that God is in control, not only can we calm down in terms of worrying about when we're going to die, But also, we can measure our days. Is it any accident that God Himself took a Sabbath on the seventh day of creation? Just as surely as He created the universe and all the elements of the universe, all the inhabitants of the universe, just as surely as He did that, He created the Sabbath for us. Jesus said, the Sabbath is for man. It's a gift from God. Rest is a gift from God. Six days you shall work. Seventh day you shall rest. So we don't need to be frantic about everything. Not be panicked about everything. Call Young, psychoanalyst, not a believer, but he had this right. He said, hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. When we're scurrying around like a bunch of... Rats on a ship that's going down at sea. We're not acting like Jesus. You don't ever sense anything about Jesus when you look at Him that would compare to panic or being frantic. You know what this principle of enough time calls us to do? To prioritize our lives. Look at the next verse. We read it from this Psalm of Moses. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. We're going to be standing before the Lord someday. If we're in Christ, we know we won't be condemned. But we will be giving some accounting of our lives. Did we live our lives in dependence upon the Holy Spirit? Did we live our lives to glorify God? If we did, it will be 
a, a most pleasant experience. But for all of us, there'll be some of the time in our lives when we did stuff that the Lord didn't tell us to do, and we did it under the guise of doing it in the name of God. But what we need to understand is we need to order our days. Now, what would that suggest? Teach us to number our days. It would suggest organizing and prioritizing. That's what it would suggest. What is most important? If you think you are overworked, then look at things that you do. It may not include just your work time. It may be your usage of time in general. Look at those things and ask the Lord to show you those things which you need to cut out of your life. Cut them out. Cut them out. There's some things which are incredibly important. Your time alone with the Lord is most important. And that's the thing that I see in my life that tends to get marginalized when I get overly busy. Spending time alone with the Lord in my own home, reading the Word of God and praying. So that's very important. I was talking to a new believer just yesterday. A young lady. She's a single lady. She's working on her master's degree. She's a very, I would say, driven young lady. A great young lady. And she told me as I listened to her talking about her walk with the Lord. She's been a Christian one year about now. This is what she said. I said, how are you doing? I called her name. How are you doing? I'm seeking to give her discipleship. And I said, how are you doing? She said, well, I'm working too much. I've got two jobs and I'm working on my master's degree. And I said, how many hours are you taking? She says, I'm taking 12 hours. Do you know what a full load in master's work is? It ain't 12. That's a killer load. Right? And then I didn't make any comment about that except to say that's a lot. And then she said, I've been praying about what the Lord would have me to do. I love it when God begins to speak to people without a pastor butting into their lives. It's awesome. And it so happened that yesterday, one of the two lessons we were considering had as the Scripture verse, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. And she said, I'm trusting the Lord and I believe the Lord is leading me to stop one job and trust Him for my provision. She still lives at home, so she's got a place to stay. And trust Him to help me to manage the money I make from the one job which I keep so I can do a good job in my studies. She's at a place of transition, as you see. But what a wonderful insight the Spirit of God gave this young lady. Awesome. And I thought, this is a girl. She, she's a woman. She's in her early 20s. I, she's still a, a girl. I don't mean that in a negative way, women. But... I think, what a lovely thing the Lord's teaching her now, early in her life. And she's learning. We need to be able to separate that which is urgent from that which is important in our lives. Well, here's the third response that we are to make when Jesus asks the question, are there not twelve hours in one day? Though we have enough time to do all God has planned for us to do, we have only that time. And that time should not be wasted. 
We must not waste the time that God has given to us. Let's read these verses from Ephesians 5, 15 through 18. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, and do not get drunk with wine, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. We're to know the will of God. It's available to us. We must be controlled by the Holy Spirit if we are to know the will of God and are able to have discernment and apply what God says to our lives. Remembering what David says to the Father in Psalm 143, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good Spirit lead me on level ground. Wonderful prayer, and one, certainly, which the Lord will answer. Have you ever said something like this? I wish there were more hours in the day. Has anyone besides me ever said that? I remember as a young pastor, I would look at some of the older men in the church, and I would hear them talk about how they only slept four hours a night, and I was struggling. When I'd get up after seven hours, I was kind of groggy, and I thought, Oh, Lord! Help me to be able to get by on four hours of sleep. And I'm beginning to understand that now. You understand me, man? You men who are a little older? Yeah, there are a lot of factors involved in that. Physical factors. But there are psychological factors also. Because we worry many times about time running out on us. We worry about aging. Look, the Bible says the glory of a young man is his strength. But the honor of an old man is his white hair. Men, there's nothing wrong with growing old. We don't have to quit. We still keep following the Lord Jesus, correct? We are energized by the Spirit. We claim the Word of God which tells us, though the outer man is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed. How frequently? Day by day. All things being equal, uh, old man who's walked with the Lord and continues to grow in the Lord, is a man who is full of wisdom and invaluable to the family of God, to the body of Christ. But we need to understand that God has a plan for us which cannot be shortened. Cannot be shortened. Do we have Acts 13, 36... Thank you, Hannah. Look at this. Acts thirteen thirty six. Would you all read this with me, please? For David, after he'd served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. Look at this. What signaled the end of his life? He had served the purpose of God in his own generation. And then he left. He went home. I cannot imagine not looking forward to being with the Father. To go home. To see the loved ones who have preceded us. To rejoice without hindrance in the Lord. No more sin in our lives to deal with. No more trouble. No more sorrow when we're with the Lord. To be absent from the body 
is to be present with the Lord. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Because these are important for all of us. Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. The day, what's necessary for people to walk without stumbling? Light. Is that right? What is the main source of light in this world, in the physical world? It's the sun. Thank the Lord for the sun, right? The sun shines and we walk. We see the light of this world. But undoubtedly, Jesus had double meaning in what He's saying here. Because already twice in the Gospel of John, He has described Himself as the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I'm the one who shines light spiritually. There are people who are walking in the light of the sun, spelled with the U, who are not walking in the light of the sun, spelled with an O. And they're described in verse 10. Look at that. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Are you in the darkness today? If so, you're in great danger. I would be remiss if I didn't warn you. Christ gives urgent warning regarding the fate of those who are not children of God. He speaks of hell as everlasting fire and everlasting punishment. A place where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. A place where the worm does not die. These are not pleasant things that are associated with hell. Hell is the absence of God. Separation from the gifts of God. People who don't know Christ yet are people who are absent the best gift that God has given. And that is His Son, Jesus Christ, and the eternal life which comes with it. We who know Christ, are humbled. I am. I hope you are. At the very thought that God chose you to be His child before the creation of the world. Does that humble you? Why would He choose you as opposed to someone else? I've asked myself that question hundreds if not thousands of times. Why me, Lord? It remains a mystery except for the fact it was His good pleasure to choose those whom He has chosen. I can't quibble with Him about those whom He did not choose. That's not my business. I'm just humbled and grateful for being one whom He has chosen. I'm grateful for the home He gave me. I'm grateful for the church He raised me in. I'm grateful for those who taught me the Gospel, preached the Gospel, lived the Gospel. I have been saved by grace through faith and that not of myself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So if you're a person who is yet to cross over from death to life, from darkness to light, don't mishear what I'm saying. No one who is in the light got there on his or her own work or steam or likability or any of those things. He or she got there by the sovereign grace of God. And if we are there, we are most blessed. And if we are there, we are to be people who give the Lord control of our lives 
And the good news is that God will use us just like He used Lazarus. Let's read a little further in verse 11. This He said, and after that He said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to Him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. They were trying to talk the Lord out of it. Okay, If he's just asleep, he'll come back, Lord. We don't have to go and face that mob of Jewish leadership who's trying to kill you and us as well. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sake, he's talking to us here, that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Death made Jesus glad. And it does to this day if the death is the death of one of God's children. How did it make Him glad? Well, first of all, Lazarus was a believer. And death is sleep. Think about death. Death is about sleep as a metaphor. It's harmless, isn't it? We've even seen it's helpful to get sleep. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, according to Romans chapter 8. And Paul writes this, Neither death, nor life, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. It's harmless. And it's also restful from toil. I love to work. Do you like to work? Work is a gift. Unbelievable. I love to work. I can't imagine a life without working. Some people can't due to disability. But we love to work. The curse was placed upon Adam, so he sweat when he worked. But look, all the sweat's going to be gone. All the tension's going to be gone. When we get to heaven, we're going to keep on working. The Bible says we serve the Lord day and night. We will never grow tired. That's awesome, isn't it? But meanwhile, we need rest from the toiling aspect. And sleep is temporary too, isn't it? When Churchill was buried, his service was held in St. Paul's Cathedral. Some of you have been there in London. And by his orders, he said, I want a bugler. He having been a military man himself, Secretary of War, he said, I want a bugler to go into the highest tower in St. Paul's and to begin the service, I would want him to play taps. You know what taps represents? End of the day. Time to turn in. And then, as soon as he finishes playing taps, have that soldier sing Reveille. What is Reveille? Time to wake up. I think of the great spiritual. In that great getting up morning, fare thee well, fare thee well. Wow. What a day. And it's true for us. We're going to come alive spirit, physically. Our spirits will not die during that interim period, but our bodies will be different. They'll be spiritual bodies. They will never decay. Christ knew also that He was going to resurrect or resuscitate, some people might say, Lazarus from the dead. You know, Jesus could never come, I believe, into the presence of death without there being a resuscitation. We know of two other instances. The daughter of Jairus, widow of Nain's son. Jesus said, if I go early, your faith is not going to be what it would be. 
Because you're going to see a man who's been dead for four days and stinking. He's rotting. And all of a sudden, I'm going to say, Lazarus, come out of that grave. And he's going to come out. And your faith is going to be built up, is what he was saying to these men. That's why he delayed in part. Because he knew if he went there, he would be raised immediately. But it was for their faith. And then Lazarus' resurrection would strengthen their faith, of course. Based on verse 15, he says that. And here's the final question for us today. Has your resurrection from the dead spiritual, spiritually had effect on others like Lazarus's did? Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All old passed away. All things have become new. Our lives have the resident Christ by the Spirit in us. And the same Jesus who walked on the face of the earth lives in you. Do you believe that? He's not there just for your convenience, by the way. He's there to be used by you. To bring glory to Himself by bringing people to Christ. He wants to use each man, woman, young man, young woman in this room who knows Christ to be His agent. And when we know who we are in Christ, we know what kind of Father we have. We know what our destiny is. How can you keep quiet about that? That's a good question. Why are we not more ready to share? Because we're afraid of people. Why are we afraid of people? We're afraid of people because we really haven't fully grasped the fact that our lives cannot come to an end until God's ready. He's going to use you right Till you take your last breath. You may be in a comatose state before you die, but God's using you there too in somebody else's life. So we have to trust the Lord. One last word to you who do not know the Lord. The Bible says in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, now is the day of salvation. The only time on the devil's clock is tomorrow. Tomorrow. Later. Later. Today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ today. Get right with God today. Give Him your life. What shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Are you ready to lose your life for Jesus today? Bow your head. Lord, we ask in Your name that You would touch the heart of maybe only one person here today who does not know You. Touch his or her heart and cause him or her to run to You, Lord. To give You control of his life or her life. And enter into this wonderful adventure of following You and being filled with Your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.